listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Welcome everyone to another Walker webcast. I'm really pleased to have Amy Gallo join me once again. Before I dive into Amy and her bio and then our discussion uh, on conflict and workplaces and culture and all that stuff, just a couple of quick things. Um, first of all, I was on the road last week in Texas, in both Dallas as well as in Austin. And in every client meeting I had, the topic of conversation beyond where rates have gone typically started with the Walker webcast and people asking about the Walker webcast. And I was in an investor meeting in Dallas and I was running late for a meeting right after the investor meeting. And in the investor meeting, one of the investors spent, I don't know, 20% of the time talking about the Walker webcast and how much this investor loved the Walker webcast. And to be honest, I sort of was wondering why he wasn't asking about whether Walker and Dunlop was a great investment rather than talking about the Walker webcast. Um, but nonetheless, I get out of that meeting and I run out of this hotel and I'm running across the street to go to my meeting and I'm late and I'm going to walk to the meeting or jog to the meeting. And all of a sudden, as I get across the street, someone rolls down the window in their SUV and goes, I love the Walker webcast. And I turn around and say to this person, thanks very much for that. And he asks, where are you going? And I said, I'm going down to X address. And he says, hop on in. And so, uh, Justin, thank you for the drive in Dallas last week to my meeting. You made me on time. Uh, and it was really nice to meet you and really nice to know that you love the Walker webcast. But it is a real honor for me to have people like Amy join me. And I do know that these webcasts are listened broadly and widely by people every single week. And uh, I'm thankful for both the time and attention that people give to the webcast and then also to my guests like Amy who give us an hour of their time and their expertise on topics that are so important to the world we live in. So with that, Amy Gallo is an expert in conflict communication, and workplace dynamics. She combines the latest management research with practical advice to deliver evidence-based ideas on how to improve relationships and excel at work. She is the author of two books, Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People, and the Harvard Business Review Guide to Dealing with Conflict. She has written hundreds of articles for the Harvard Business Review, where she is a contributing editor. For the past four years, Amy has co-hosted Harvard Business Review's popular Women at Work podcast, which examines the struggles and success of women in the workplace. Amy has taught at Brown University and the University of Pennsylvania and is a graduate of Brown and Yale. So first, Amy, welcome back to the Walker webcast. The last time you and I did this, you were joined by our friend, your research colleague, and simply magical person, Sagal Varsade. And as some of our listeners may know, right after we did that webcast, Sigal got uh, diagnosed with brain cancer and um, died dramatically soon thereafter. And um, I know that she is missed by you, she is missed by me, and she is missed by her family and colleagues at Wharton. But I just wanted to point that out before you and I dive into our conversation. Yeah, thank you for doing that. I I do miss her and miss her and I'm glad her work lives on. She's left quite a legacy of amazing research and and thinking. So So Amy, I was um I just gave the anecdote of being in 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 Texas last week and the talk about the Walker webcast. I was in California about a month ago and was with one of our clients who said, "Oh, I love the Walker webcast and I listen to it all the time, but I only listen to your discussions with Peter Linneman and and Mark Zandi and the people who are talking about the economy and kind of the hard numbers. But whenever you go and have someone on who talks about that soft stuff like HR and conflict and all that, I I don't listen to that stuff. And I sort of laughed because, you know, I'll have a great conversation with Peter Linneman next week at the New York Stock Exchange. And I know we will have thousands and thousands of people who will tune in to listen to what Peter has to say about where rates are going to go. And that's obviously very important to the commercial real estate industry. But as someone who has built a pretty darn successful business over quite some time, it's the soft stuff. It's the conflict resolution. It's the people stuff 
that is really what helps scale and build businesses and make them successful enterprises. And I, I found that sort of comment from that gentleman, who, by the way, is very successful, um, to be interesting. And so I, I hope, uh, A, I hope he's listening today, even though I doubt he is. But second of all, I hope everyone who tunes in today can get from you what I consider to be really some of the most important pieces of how to build and scale businesses. Yeah. I mean, I think this is nothing we do is without other people, right? Every, everything we do is with other people and being able to interact, collaborate, brainstorm together, whatever it is you need to do. It, if we can do that better, the end result, whatever that end result is in your work is going to be stronger. And I, you know, I, I think about this project when, but earlier in my career, I worked as a management consultant. I remember we were on this project and we were helping this company that was 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 two companies actually coming together in a merger to come up with a new strategy. And we spent months and months, right, going through all of the numbers, the, the hard stuff, as that <laughs> that guy would say, of figuring this out. And I remember it culminated in this day-long strategy session. We had some of the brightest minds in the room. They had incredible amount of resources. Just And, and truthfully, the strategy was really quite airtight. But I remember walking out and my, my fellow consulting colleagues and I just saying, I don't know, like those people do not know how to resolve conflict. They do not. Like there's so much unspoken in that room. There's so much tension. Like, can they do this? And that merger actually failed. And I and, you know, I, I hesitate to say it was entirely because of the way people interacted. But you can't not deal with this stuff. It's it's going to be there whether you like it or not. And getting good at it, encouraging your people to gain the skills they need is just going to make your your business better. So I hope that guy's listening too. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe he changed his mind. Maybe he did. So in your book, Getting Along, you talk about just the conflict is everywhere and it's part of what makes us human. Um, and you talk about some of the physiological drivers of both conflict and then how we respond to conflict. But before we dive into that, I want to ask you a question. You are an expert at conflict resolution. Um, you are an expert at identifying it, giving tips on how to deal with it. So my question to you is this, if I asked your 16-year-old daughter how you deal with conflict, what would she say? I'm going to be up frank. She would say I'm horrible at it. And and I, I want to believe that it's because she's 16, but what she would, and actually that's not fair. She wouldn't say I'm horrible, especially if we had her here in front, in front of this audience, I'm sure she would be much better behaved about it. But she, my poor daughter is the daughter of a conflict expert and a therapist. So all we do is talk about feelings and conflict. And, and she, you know, she, to her credit, really actually has developed her own skills, not even things we've taught her, but around how to deal with this. And she will, she often says, you're not following your own advice, right? And she, and it's the, the reality is those physiological reactions we have are true, whether you're an expert at this or whether you don't feel like you're good at it at all, they come up no matter what. And so, you know, she would say I'm horrible at it, but she also says I'm horrible at most things, driving, right? All the things. So, but it is hard for everyone. I talk about this day in and day out. I research it. I write books about it. And it is still, I wish I could say, oh yeah, conflicts are easy. I have more confidence that I can handle them. I have more confidence that the outcomes are going to be good, but it doesn't mean it's comfortable to me. It's certainly not simple. So uh, one of the, I bring up parenting to start this because I mean, all of us have both work conflict as well as conflicts with our kids. And and so it's something that kind of all of us can sit there and say, wow, there are skills here that I can use both in the office, but there are also skills I can use at home. But one of the interesting, and I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but I thought this was interesting. One of the things out of your book that I, I took was you, you talked about your physical state when delivering difficult news and dealing with conflict at the office. And one of the things you state there is it's not so much whether you as the deliverer of the news are in a physical or mental state to be able to deliver the news. It's whether you're prepared to deal with the feedback and the response. And I and I thought that was such uh, so insightful, Amy, just because I, I think in the office, if I'm going to have a difficult conversation with someone, I've got time to prepare for it. The timeline is on me and therefore I better be ready 
physically and mentally to be able to have the conversation and think about how the person's going to respond and how I'll respond to their response. But when we're at home and my 16-year-old son does something and I have a difficult conversation with him, I'm rarely thinking about my mental and physical state, not of giving him the news, but of dealing with his response and feedback to me. And I thought that was so helpful in the context of being mindful of that next time I talk to my 16-year-old son about something. Yeah. Well, and, and I love that. Um, and I think that's the the playing out the different scenarios, like because we're we often focus on the delivering. What do I want to say? What's the message, especially with our kids, right? Like, what's the message I want to land? What do I want them to hear? How do I want this to go? And then it never goes the way we think it's going to go. And then we have to deal with the consequences. And I think that the consequences are often harder, right? The reaction, the maybe the anger or the shutting down, or they say something where you're like, wow, I was not expecting that. And here I'm talking about teenagers, but also colleagues and employees, right? And and we're not, I we really have to make sure we're, we don't have every answer at the ready, but that we're emotionally centered and calm enough to deal with what was likely to be an unexpected or challenging response. I, th- I mean, I think of this, I had an experience where I was working on a project where someone said something that was racist and we had to address it afterwards. I And it took me, you know, it took me so much time to prepare how to say what I wanted to say, how I wanted to explain how it, that comment might have landed. And, uh, you know, I, I put in so much time and effort into getting it right. And then I was fully unprepared for the complete and utter pushback that I got. And I didn't, I didn't have like plan B, C, D ready. You know, the interesting thing about that conversation too, which I think is gets to what you're talking about is that it's not just that I wasn't prepared for the pushback, but the conversation didn't go well. Like I would have, I, if you asked me afterwards, give that conversation a grade, I would have said D, like at most a C minus, right? It did not go well. And I was basing it on her reaction. Now, three months later, I come to find out another colleague of ours says, oh, so-and-so said you had a great conversation with her. And I, and I also in the reframe, and I realized her reaction in the moment was emotional. She did not like to hear what I had to say, but it landed. And so even though in the moment, the conversation didn't feel good, the goal of that conversation was still met. And I think that's another thing is we often evaluate whether our interactions, our conversations, especially tough conversations go well based on how we feel. And and you, you of course, you want to walk out smiling and, and feeling like we're on the same page, but that's not always going to be the case. But that doesn't mean it was a failure. I'm, I'm interested in the comment about your daughter and then your comment right there as it relates to that conversation with a colleague, only in that as an expert in all this stuff, my assumption would be that you carry mental tool set with you all the time that allows you to frame conflict better than most. And as you point out in your book, Amy, the we all deal with conflict and being in a company that either has a lot of conflict or not is the difference between a successful career or changing jobs. You point out in your book that there's a Harvard Business School uh, professor who did a study on startups and in his book called, I think it was Founder's Dilemma, that 65% of startups fail because of conflict between the founders. I, I found that to be amazing that like, it's not that you ran out of funding. It's not that your idea wasn't good. It's that there was conflict between the founders and poof, the whole thing goes up. And so the ability to work through conflict and deal with others is the difference between a successful career or not. It's the difference between a startup working or not. And in many instances, the difference between a marriage, either lasting going the distance or ending up in divorce because you can't deal with the conflict between two people. So given that, if I were inside of Amy's mind, knowing all you know, what's the framing that you carry that allows you when dealing with conflict to go to a different place than react to it poorly like many of us do? Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things. One, instead, when I think there's that natural instinct, you referred to that physiological response. We Most of us interpret conflict as a threat, right? A threat to our relationships, a threat to our identity or to our resources, maybe to our career. Um, maybe just to the sense of harmony that we enjoy in our marriage or in our working relationships or our relationship with our our child. So when we experience that threat, we go into what's often called fight, flight, or freeze. We call it amygdala hijack, right? Where we're not making rational decisions. We're just like protect, protect, protect. 
So couple things. One is I have a very, I'm very attuned to what are the signs that I'm going into that. For me, it's sweaty palms. I often feel my shoulders start like hunching up. So I know I'm like, okay, that's happening. I need to breathe. I need to focus. And then I really, really try to get curious. So when a conflict comes up, my first instinct might be, oh no. But then I'm like, huh, okay, interesting. Right. And I really try to understand, okay, what is going on here? And so that's, that's sort of the big thing. It's just understanding my physical reaction and what that means about where my brain might be going. Also being quite curious. And then as I sort of start to navigate into that conversation, and this is really hard to do, but as I try to remember, what is my ultimate goal? Because when we're in that fight, flight, or freeze, sometimes our goals get very short, short term, right? I want this conversation to be over. I want them to be happy. I want me to be happy, right? I want... I want to be right. I want them to admit that they're wrong and I'm right. But those goals aren't helpful. So I try to think about what is it really that I need from this conversation? Is it that I need my kid to agree about who's using the car this weekend? Is it that I need my colleague to be on board with this big change to the project that we've just proposed? What is that goal? Because that also helps me stay out of those sort of emotional response which is going to be there, but it allows me to really focus on how, what's my next step to get to that goal, not to sort of end things, try to smooth things over and um, you know, try to just get out. You talk about the physiological fight or flight, flight or fight instinct, and, and then also self-doubt and where we all go in self-doubt. And one of the, I thought, funny things that you write in your book is that 99% of human beings have a lot of self-doubt and the 1% who don't are psychopaths. That's uh, right. <laughs> and and uh, I was actually, I, I listened to Walter Isaacson on his book on Elon Musk be interviewed by David Rubenstein at the Economic Club of Washington last night. And I thought one of the interesting things that Isaacson said was that he covered Musk and he's talking about the the depths of when SpaceX ran out of money and when Tesla ran out of money and how Elon couldn't sleep and he and, and he was completely stressed out. And then all of a sudden everything started to come back. And there was this moment of time where te- he proved all the shorts and Tesla wrong and SpaceX had just launched their, you know, whatever the rocket and it was gaining value over and over and over. And he turned to Elon and he said, you know, you must feel really good now that things are kind of stable and you've been proven to be successful. And Musk turned to him and he goes, no, I love chaos. I love disorder. I love friction. And I was sitting there thinking about, hey, obviously the man's mind is absolutely ingenious, but just sort of gearing yourself towards not liking conflict, but understanding what you're trying to get out of the conflict. In other words, like the bad news to a colleague is in the colleague's best interest or the company's best interest. And at the end of the day, you may lose the person or you may not, but you know you're doing that because there's some outcome you're trying to get to for right or for wrong, if you will, and you hope it's for right. Um, but I thought that was so interesting about you saying, go back to why you're doing what you're doing and try not to personalize it too much as it relates to this is all about me. Because one of the other things you point out, Amy, is figure out what the other person's motivation is. Don't look at it as framing them as the bad person. And it's all that you're in the right, you're in the no, you know what's going on. Right. I mean, you really need to picture yourselves on the same side of the table, right? I like to think of there being three entities in a conflict or a difficult conversation. There's you, there's the other person, and then there's the problem you're trying to solve. And the problem you're trying to solve might be a business issue. It might be how you interact, right? But if you see yourself on the same side of the table, trying to solve that problem together, it's the complete the tone of the conversation, the tenor of it is going to completely change than if you see yourself as in a tug of war with the other person. The, the other thing I really try to remember, and, and the Elon Musk story sort of sparked this for me, which is, do you know what a balance board is, Lily? Have you ever used one? It's oh, yeah. like, sure. yeah, I'm not very good at it, but you get it and you're trying to go back and forth and sit it. It's like the top of a skateboard on a cylinder yeah. and you're trying to balance. It's funny, I, I'm not very good at it. Well, I'm now good at it, I don't know how to explain. But so my my husband and daughter both love this. They're both surfers, they love it. They, they're they on it all the time. And the joke in my family was that they would time me. I had never been up balanced for more than eight seconds. Like I just couldn't do it. And this summer I was determined. I'm like, I put it in the middle of our living room. I'm like, I'm gonna figure this out. And one day my daughter walked back, she goes, 
you realize you're not trying to balance. And I said, what? And she said, you're trying to recover from imbalance. Right. And I was like, oh, and it changed everything, right? I wasn't, because I was so focused on how do I balance? How do I balance? And what I realized is you're always imbalanced. How do I find the, the recover from the imbalance? And in that recovery might cause another imbalance, then I have to recover from that. And that's really how I think about, like, I mean, that Elon Musk's brain sort of embraces that of like, it. we're always in imbalance with other people. The idea that like, we're going to have a perfect relationship with our spouse, with our colleagues, with our boss, um, with our investors, right? It's never going to be perfect. Conflict is in, inevitable. It is going to come up. And it's not about whether you can stay out of it. It's can you recover from it in a way that's strong, like makes the relationship stronger and makes you more resilient. So that, that's, that's one of the things I really try to encourage people to develop is, is an interpersonal resilience because you're going to have conflict. You just need to have more confidence going in them, going into the conversation, and also ideally feel less stress when you're in the midst of them. Because that's the goal of staying out of conflict is not good either. We could, you and I together could probably think of many organizations where there was zero conflict and they were not successful, right? Like they, and in fact, there's so many corporate scandals that came from the fact that people weren't having enough conflict. They weren't raising issues. They weren't having the hard, making them hard trade-offs, the tough conversations. So, you know, I, I think we have to think about that. That's another frame of mind of like, when something goes wrong, when there's a conflict, I'm not like, oh gosh, this, our relationship's over. I'm like, okay, how do we get this back on track? How do we get back to a place of equilibrium, even if it's just temporary? You talk about kind of how we all react to conflict. And there's the, you can ignore it, you can address it directly, or you can address, address it indirectly. And one of the things you point out is that all of us sort of have a sort of a, a propensity to either avoid conflict or go after conflict. But you're, you're very straightforward in saying that if not, it's not binary, that we're all sort of on a continuum, somewhere between the complete conflict avoiders to the conflict seekers. Like it sounds like Elon Musk to some degree is a conflict seeker. Talk for a moment about, because you say very clearly, you cannot default to conflict avoidance. Like anyone who defaults to conflict avoidance is just going to keep kicking the can down the road. And at some point they run into a wall. But talk on that level from a management standpoint, from a work standpoint, as uh, as all of us are part of an ecosystem, how should we orient ourselves to either avoiding conflict, looking for conflict, or trying to find somewhere in between? Yeah. Well, can I ask you first, actually, Willie, where do you identify on that spectrum? Oh, gosh. I think naturally I'm a conflict avoider, yet mm -hmm. as a manager, I realize that it's my job to be to confront issues. And I think I've, I've become quite good and at at dealing with conflict and being very straightforward i would also say that, that there are certain conflicts that we all try and avoid more than others and one of the things that i think i've been able to do at times is i could have outsourced the conflict to somebody else on my management team and i took responsibility for it i had the hard conversation and i and i think that maintaining that respect as a leader that you will go and have the hard conversations when you know you could give it to somebody else is a very, very important part of maintaining the respect of your senior leadership team. Yeah. Um, so as much as there've been plenty of times where I could be like, hey, Howard Smith, who's our president, who has dealt with many, many conflicts that I both either didn't want to or just because he is better at it, there are times where I could have said, hey, will you go take care of that? And I've stepped in and done it. And I think that that maintains a certain amount of respect amongst leaders um, when you're not always kind of pushing it off to somebody else. Yeah. It's interesting. I hear a lot of CEOs say that, that their their natural instinct is to avoid, but they realize it's part of the job. And I, I, I would argue it's one of the essential skills of leadership is being able to address conflicts, being able to have tough conversations. I mean, you I bet if we looked at your calendar this week, you could list dozens of tough conversations you've had to have, right? It's just, it's it's rampant and it's just, you have- one, one, The one thing I would say on that, and, and particularly as organizations scale, Amy, is that, I mean, to your point of looking at my calendar, I, I don't necessarily, I, I get plenty of good news, but people don't call me with, hey, we just did this and it's really great. People call me with, um, we got a problem. And- right. 
all CEOs are really there to deal with the hard stuff, not the easy stuff. Because the easy stuff kind of happens. And yes, believe me, I get a lot of credit for the easy stuff that goes well, and I'm very thankful to my team for it. But the, the, the place where leaders and managers step in is typically in the tough stuff, not the easy stuff. That's right. And I think you you the way you described how you handle conflict is exactly when to answer your question about the balance is that what you have to watch out is, first of all, know what your default is, like know in a moment of stress when things, you know, when things all of a sudden pop up, you don't have a moment to think, what is your natural reaction? Is it to shut down or is it to jump in? Right. Is it to stir the pot or is it to back off? Knowing that's your default style, then your work is to make sure you don't default to that in most situations, but that you make a conscious choice. Because there is, there are many situations in which doing nothing, avoiding the conflict is a, is a rational thing to do, right? So maybe there's a problem that's just presented itself. It's just a one-off. It's not, you don't suspect it's going to repeat. So you say, okay, let's keep an eye on that, but you don't actually engage or you don't actually dig into the issue. And then there are times where maybe you're you're um, hesitant, but then you actually do need to dig in, right? This is something that's happened repeatedly or it has serious consequences and not resolving it is going to create many problems down the road. So what you have to be able to do is flex your style. And I think the more senior you get in an organization, the more you're called on to do that, right? To either be, you know, dig into the conflict when it when it comes up or to make the call like, hey, we're not going to address this quite yet. We're just going to wait and see what happens. Or we're just going to, we're going to let it play out, right? Like, And I think a lot of times, I think middle managers in, in particular get into the like, I must step in, I must step in, I must engage in the conflict. And there's times, I think you learn over time that there's times where that's just not, that's not appropriate for the situation. The person on the other end of the conversation isn't going to be receptive to it. It's going to make matters worse. Or um, like I said, it's only going to be, it's a one-off. The conversation is going to create a lot of tension in the system with not a lot of positive results. So you really have to sort of weigh the costs and benefits. And I bet you probably do that quite quickly in your mind when you're deciding how do I engage in this. In the same way you're making the decision of, am I going to take this on? Or is you know my president going to take this on? Right, you're weighing the costs and benefits of doing that. Right, what are the costs of me actually intervening now? What are the costs of me staying silent and then weighing those? You you talk about engaging in a conversation, a tough conversation, and then the amygdala hijack that says, "Uh oh, this doesn't feel good," or it isn't going the way I want to. And one of the things that I thought was interesting, right back to your comment about a middle manager feeling like this issue has to get dealt with like right now is one of the things you say is if the conversation isn't going the way you intended it to, back off, like leave it. You can come back to it. I I think one of our natural ones, like back to my saying, if I've got a hard conversation with someone, I can get prepared for it. I better be physically and mentally ready to take on that conversation. But once you get to it, there's always this, at least in me, this desire, I got to get it done now. Like this has to be done and he or she needs to understand what I need to say now because boy, I've gotten the meeting set up. I've gotten the message delivered. But you say, you know, if it's not heading in the right direction, you can back off and leave it and come back to it the next day, the next week or what have you, which I thought was very interesting advice. Yeah. And I think it's partly because when you're in that amygdala hijack, you don't have full access to your prefrontal cortex, which is the rational thinking part of your brain. So if you're sitting there feeling totally overwhelmed or frustrated or like anxious that this has to get resolved right now, you're not going to have a great conversation. And I understand urgency. I understand there are decisions that need to be made in that moment. And that's if that's the case, of course, sit through it. Maybe take a short break. Maybe just go get a glass of water and come back. Something to just sort of try to reset. And this is true if the other person, you recognize they're in amygdala hijack, right? Never do the thing no one likes to do, likes to be told. Like never say you need to calm down, but offer the person a break, right? Like, hey, I I realize I I could use five minutes or I realize that this conversation might go better tomorrow and you want to try again tomorrow, right? You just give the person a, a an out that they don't have to just, because they're we often in that amygdala hijack have no idea that we're at, we've lost sort of control of our, of our thinking, of our emotions. And so, yeah, take a break. I mean, by all means, you know, own it, say like, I just need 
to take a walk around the building? Can we have this conversation this afternoon? Or, um, you know, I realize I don't have all of the information I need. Can we take a few days and then continue this conversation? The other thing is sometimes you are feel ready. You're not even in that amygdala hijack, but you realize this is not going to resolve in one conversation. So it, sometimes it's a series of conversations that need to happen. Now, for time-pressured leaders, I understand that that's not always feasible, but I just, I want people to think about the fact that a good conflict and resolved well is going to save you so much time down the line. Then a bad, like then a bad conflict that you're just sort of stewing in or make a rash decision about, you're going to be dealing with the consequence of, of that for, for time to come. So interesting you talk about the investment of time to get to a good, if you will, conflict resolution. It makes me think about culture inside of companies and, and people inside of companies. And you spend a bunch of time in the book just talking about how important culture is and how teams that work well together are so much more productive and have such dramatically better outcomes than teams that don't. And we all watch football teams every Saturday and Sunday across the country. And it's easy to see which ones have a great culture and execute well in the field and those that don't. Uh, but few companies are able to be run like Nick Saban runs Alabama football. I mean, he's got a process. He is a dictator in that process and he controls those students for as long as they are there. And it's, it's Nick's way or the highway. And that's not corporate America and that's not the world we live in. But one of the things that I, I was with a friend of mine, Jonathan Coleman, who works at Janice Henderson last weekend, and he'd been back at Wake Forest and had listened to the Wake Forest baseball coach talk about the fact that they spend 40 hours, 40 hours with every baseball recruit who they give a scholarship offer to, to, to Wake Forest. Mm -hmm. And I, and I thought about how much time we spend at Walker and Dunlop on recruiting individuals to come in. And I, you know, at the senior executive level, I'm certain that we spend 40 hours plus with senior executives rounds and rounds and dinners and what have you. But when I think about the people that we bring in as entry level employees at Walker and Dunlop and the amount of time, we're certainly more skills focused than we are on personality focused. That's we right. want to know whether the person can actually do the job. And then hopefully we think that the culture at Walker and Dunlop, and obviously we're looking at them as a person. But when I read your research and I read how important the overall culture is and people being on the same page and working well with one another, I sit there and say, we ought to be recruiting for personality type and fit almost more than skill. Is that to help me? Is is that yeah. or Amy or am I, is that something that you would say people should think about? Well, it's, it depends how you define personality and fit because I think fit can be tricky, right? So oftentimes fit gets interpreted and and this is not, I'm not insinuating that you think this, but I think a lot of people you interpret fit as, are they like us, right? And I think that's like, do they see the world the same way? Do they have the same experiences? And, and obviously you want to hire people who have different experiences, view the world differently. When I think about hiring, one of the things that I think is so essential is, is, is skill, um, but it's skill, it's not the skills of like, do you have the hard skills that are required of this job? Because often you can train those, but do you have the skills like conflict resolution? Right. Do you, and one of the questions I love to hear that companies are asking is tell us about a conflict you had in your last job and how you resolved it. Right. Things like that, I think, are so critical to understanding whether someone will, quote unquote, fit in the organization, meaning will they um, be able to navigate the culture? Will they be able to understand it? Right. I, I want to see people evaluated on emotional intelligence skills to to really assess whether they're going to be able to, um, you know, do the job that's required, not just the, the the sort of list of things on a job description, but then have the interactions, build the relationships, have the influence they'll need to actually achieve those bullet points on, on the job description. Did that, does that answer your question? Yeah. So in response to your question of tell me about conflict at your last job or where you are, yeah. how you dealt with it. What if someone says, I don't have conflict? That is a red flag. I mean, I'm, I, I will tell you. You're going to say that. No, that's a, I, say that. Because, I mean, I think, well, one, I would say, well, why do you think that is? Like, I'd be very curious what their interpretation and it, who knows? Because the other thing you have to remember is conflict is in the eye of the beholder, right? You and I could really have what I felt was a very tense conversation. And you're like, 
Well, that was such an interesting discussion, right? Like you, we might have, because we have different tolerance levels for discomfort, for tension, for um, for conflict, it may be that that person just doesn't have the phys- the same physiological response that many of us do to conflict. Maybe they don't interpret. You might then rephrase the question, right? You know, tell me about a time you didn't see eye to eye with people, right? What about a disagreement? You know, certainly disagreements have come up. Um, but it, so they may have a different interpretation, but I think it's someone who says, no, I never have conflict. I, I think it's either most likely not seeing situations for the way they are or is, you know, not te- quite telling the truth. So you put in the book four different reasons for conflict, process, objective, leadership status, and personal. Can you walk our listeners through those four reasons for conflict, if you will, and whether one of them is more challenging than the other? Yeah. So there's actually, it divides into two in terms of challenge. So there's task, right? Objective. We disagree over the goal. What are we actually trying to achieve? Like, are we launching this initiative because we want to improve customer satisfaction or because we want to increase revenue? Like, what's the fundamental goal? Relatively straightforward conflict that comparatively to solve, which is that um, we, it's not personal, right? It's not necessarily connected to our ego. So we can decide, okay, well, you know, what's the objective of the organization? What is the goal we're trying to achieve there, right? We, there's ways we can resolve that one that that don't necessarily get personal. The other type that's a little more, uh, a little more complicated, but also relatively straightforward is process. So maybe we agree the goal is to increase revenue, but I think we're going to do that by taking our best-selling product and improve it. And you think you're, we're going to do that by expanding the product line, right? So that's sort of a a process. How are we actually going to do it? A lot of the process conflicts I see also are around, um, you know, how fast we move, how or how careful we are, quality versus efficiency, for example. Um, so those are process conflicts. The other two status, right? Who actually gets to make the call? Who's in charge? Um, those that gets a little trickier because then it starts to become connected to our ego, right? Am I in charge, right? Am I am I making the final decision in this meeting or is Willie? What's happening here? Um, and then there's personal or re- what I often call relationship, which is that's a personality clash. So where you and I may be disrespecting each other, maybe we're exchanging snarky emails or um, one of us keeps talking over the other in, in a meeting, right? That starts to become a relationship conflict. Now, they're not neatly, conflicts don't fall neatly into those four categories. It's often a mix, right? So you might disagree over the goal, what we're trying to do. That leads to a status conflict because we can't agree on who actually gets to make the call. And then it becomes a relationship conflict because we're playing that out in front of our teams in a way that creates a lot of tension for everyone else. So when we have a personality conflict or a status conflict, you talk about the eight archetypes of various people that will you'll have problems with. And there's the insecure boss, there's the pessimist, there's the victim, there's passive aggressive, there's know-it-all, there's the tormentor, there's the biased coworker, and there's the political operator. So those are the eight archetypes that you put them into. And one of the things you say is be very careful in, if you will, sticking someone in one of those archetypes and thinking that because someone is the pessimist that you know how he or she is either thinking or you can blame them for, oh, there Amy goes being her pessimistic self rather than actually in this one, I might be acting like a know-it-all and it's actually Amy responding to Willie being a know-it-all versus Amy being the pessimist. Talk, Talk about that dynamic and about the eight archetypes that you have created in the book or, or classified in the book, if you will. Yeah. You know, and I just noticed when you were, you were trying to say the people who you will have challenges with, right? You were trying to enjoy, avoid the difficult people phrase. I think that's what you were doing. I, I have to say it's on the cover of my book. It's in the subtitle of the book. I still have mixed feelings with it. And it's the same way I feel about the archetypes, which is that it, there, those labels can be instructive if we if they encourage curiosity, right? So why is Amy being pessimistic? Like, why does she tend to have a negative view on these things? Or what's going on with Willie that he's acting like a know-it-all? Like, it it has to encourage our um, sort of natural 
curiosity or interest in other people rather than being dismissive, rather than shutting down and feeling definitive, like Amy is a pessimist. There is, and, and then you start, the problem is confirmation bias comes in and then you start seeing all of that through the Amy is a pessimist lens, right? And everything I say is now interpreted as negative, even if it's neutral or even maybe positive. So we have to be really careful that we don't use these labels to dismiss people. I do use the archetypes and I do use the phrase difficult people because I think that's what when people are seeking advice, when they're seeking help, that's what they, they're dealing with. That's what they, those patterns of behavior, passive aggression, political operating, victim, you know, playing, playing the victim, right? That's what we, what I know I'm dealing with. And that's the, that's how I'm going to seek the advice. So that's really what, when I share the archetypes, it's meant to be as a diagnostic tool that allows you to get specific advice based on the pattern of behavior you're dealing with. It's not permission to decide you don't have to deal with that person anymore because they fit neatly into this archetype. Does that make sense, Willie? It does. Is there any reason why the insecure boss was number one on your list in the sense that you <laughs> spent a lot of time there? I'm just curious in the sense that because you look at organizations and spend so much time researching organizations, does that insecure boss come out as the archetype that causes all sorts of kind of collateral damage more so than having a pessimistic boss or having a boss who acts like a victim or having someone next to you who's that way. It seemed like there was a lot of time focused on that. Is that is that from your research what comes up first? You know, it's, it's the one I hear most often about actually is passive aggressive behavior. So that passive aggressive peer chapter was the first one I wrote. The insecure manager, the, the reason the insecure boss came First is because we did want to make sure that people who were dealing with a boss um, sort of got that advice first. And I spend a lot of time there because there is such interesting research about both what you're alluding to, the damage of, of working with an insecure boss, but also why it happens. I mean, you talked earlier about the 99% of people feel some insecurity, some self-doubt. And the people who don't, we call psychopaths, right? That That's it is normal to feel self-doubt. And there's some interesting research that shows the more senior in an organization someone gets, the more they are, more likely they are to feel self-doubt, which is actually the opposite of what we expect to happen because now they've got the title, they've got the salary, they've got power, they have influence. Why wouldn't they feel more secure? The problem is the expectations for them have risen. And so there's a the gap between what they believe they can deliver and those expectations, and they they tend to feel insecure. There's one study, I'm not going to remember the exact numbers, but there's one study of, of executives in, in the UK who looked at what what is what are their biggest concerns, and one of them was being found out to not be up for the job, right? And I think that's, we like to think of our leaders as confident, but often they experience self-doubt, which is normal. And we should actually normalize that because the more we expect these leaders, the, the greater the gap between the expectations and their perception of competence, the less likely they are to listen to employees, be open to feedback, um, to, to make good decisions, right? We, we, that gap can be really destructive. And for you personally working for someone who is an insecure manager, you might experience you know, micromanaging, they might doubt your work, they might hoard information, not allow you to interact with other departments or, or divisions. And that can be super damaging, not only to your psyche in terms of you then start to doubt yourself, but also to your career, because it becomes very limiting in terms of what you can accomplish, who you can interact with. So the the short answer is it, it's, I don't think we've seen the prevalence necessarily as much, but the damage is greater and I think it's just insecurity in itself is such a natural human trait that it, it's going to come up. So if you work for that insecure boss, what, how should you deal with it in the sense that, I, mean, I remember distinctly when I worked at Morgan Stanley, I had a project I was working on and the vice president I was working for was a very insecure person. And she withheld information and I spent weeks putting together this pitch and the night before we were to get on a plane and fly to Europe to make the pitch, she said, come with me. And we walked down a hallway and there were these um, stacks of, of, of files. And uh, this was well before cloud computing and all the files are up in the cloud. And she pulled out this pitch and we'd done the exact same pitch for another Morgan Stanley client 
a month earlier and had all the work that I've been working on for two weeks, but she A, just wanted to see me stay up all night long and try and do it. And B, she was a little insecure in her own, you know, she wanted to withhold information to just make sure that I was good enough to like support her in the pitch. And, um, you know, in my world, I said, well, good thing I am only working on this project with her. And hopefully the next time I have a different vice president who's going to be looking over me. But what do you do when you're in that position? And let's just say that, that vice president was my vice president for seemingly the next two or three years at Morgan Stanley. What do I do in that moment? Yeah. I mean, well, she also would fall into the archetype I talk about in the book called The Tormentor, which is someone who we expect to be a mentor. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Did she torment me? <laughs> yes. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah. Right. So so there's a couple things that, that research has shown works. Now, the, the you have to remember that there is no like four step guide to dealing with a tormentor or like, you know, four steps to making your boss less secure, less insecure. Like it, it, this is all about experimentation, depending on the situation, depending on the power dynamic, depending on that person's personality, your personality, where you have to sort of experiment with what works. But what, what research has shown is that one of the things that sort of calms insecure bosses' ego, which, you know, they tend to have high, what we call ego defensiveness, is actually helping them feel more secure. Now, is it your job to help your boss feel more secure? No, but will a couple well-placed, genuine compliments tend to sort of help calm that ego? Research indicates yes. And so I think we have to think about what is the boss actually good at? What do we want them to know that we appreciate about them? I have to tell you, I like squirm when I give this advice because the last thing I'm sure you wanted to do with that boss was be, was flatter her, right? Like, and it's just, it's sort of an icky concept, but we do know it helps to calm that ego. The other thing, and, and actually this ridiculous exercise she had you perform is in part what, what doing this is that when, when in academic research, we call abusive supervision, right? When a manager is actually, and sometimes we use that term loosely, but what um, what we has been shown to work is actually to change the balance of power is that the, the manager feels like they have a ton of power. But if you can show them that you have a skill that they need or that you have a piece of knowledge that they need, or there's a way that you interact with the team that they're unable to, or oh, you have a relationship with another part of the organization, that can sort of help them to to do less of the the sort of wielding of their power because now they realize they they need you. Um, and I think the other thing is sometimes with a with an insecure boss, it just helps to have, and with any of the archetypes, it can just help to have a conversation where you might say you know, I don't feel like we got off on the right foot and I want to make sure this relationship works well for both of us. Is there something I could do differently, right? Like not making a request, but asking how can you participate differently? What were you going to say, Willie? No, I was just going to say you underscore that in the book as it relates to not assuming people's motives. So with the eight archetypes, not assuming that just because someone's passive aggressive or because someone is the pessimist, that that's what's driving their behavior. And that you're very quick to point out, just as you said there, ask them why they are acting this way and 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 find out what it is that's going on in any kind of conflict, not just a, 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 a an insecure boss. But you know, you you say imputing motive always gets you in trouble. And and I thought that that was such a helpful thing to sort of say, don't assume that someone's acting in a certain way. Just ask them, what's the problem, Amy? Why why is what's happening here not meeting your expectations or why are you driving me that way? And those conversations in and of themselves are often very challenging because we put ourselves out there to say, you're going to give me some feedback that says, Willie, I didn't think you were ready for the presentation or I don't think you're smart enough to put together the pitch book to go do it. And so I had to make sure that you actually could do it, which is kind of like, mm, okay, thought I was, but that maybe that's the reason you had me spend two weeks putting together the presentation. Yeah. Well, and I think that you're, you're, you're alluding to two different issues and I think they're both really important. One of which is the social psychology concept called the fundamental attribution error, which is that in the simplest form, if I showed up late to a meeting, I would think of all the reasons why I was late. There was traffic, my kid, um, you know, got in an argument with my kid on the way into the office, whatever it is, I would think of all these circumstances that led to my tardiness. If you are walking late, my instinct is to assign that tardiness to your personality. Willie must be disorganized or doesn't care about this meeting or 
um, you know, is terrible at time management. He packs his schedule too tight and can never get into a meeting on time, right? And we'd start, and that's what happens with um, with difficult, when we observe difficult behavior in someone else, we start to assign it to their personality rather than understanding the circumstances that might have led, right? Oftentimes insecurity is because they have a boss breathing down their neck. Maybe they have unrealistic targets for that quarter that they're really trying to achieve. Maybe they really don't believe you're up for the job and wanted to show that you are, right? Who knows what it is? And I, I think we have to be really careful. The other thing is, and, and we have to really watch for bias, in, especially when we use the term difficult or um, any of these archetypes, because oftentimes when we see someone behave differently than we expect, let's say I'm particularly confident in my um, career, in my role, and I have a boss who I've decided is insecure, right? Is it the fact that I'm just sort of comparing them to me, that they're different in some way? Or often what happens is based on who they are, whether it's their gender, their race, where they um, where they came from in terms of a different organization or their industry or their function, we often will jump to particular labels, right? People in finance are always pessimistic, right? We start to do things like that and we have to watch for that bias to make sure that that's not creeping in to our interpretation of that behavior. You talked about remote work and I thought it was really interesting. Today, when I was at Starbucks, just before coming into the office, I remote ordered a Starbucks and I, and I swear to you, I waited for 15 to 20 minutes in Starbucks and I was standing next to this woman who, uh, by the way, watches the Walker webcast and said, are you, <laughs> anyway, uh, and, and, um, I, I, they said, man, I've never seen a line like that. She said, oh, I talked to the baristas. They said, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, this place is packed with people because everyone's in the office Monday, Friday, not so much. And it was just interesting about that. But you talk about the fact that some, I mean, that, that, that remote work can exacerbate bad relationships. And I think a lot of people um, felt that, you know, working remotely avoided conflict. It avoided the difficult conversations because the moment the conversation was done, clip, we came on, Amy and I did our Zoom call. I didn't have the opportunity to sit next to the water cooler with you and ask you a question or not that might have gotten you happy or upset, whatever the case might be. But you say that we're kind of kicking the can down the road and that in in remote work, we're really not getting the time to be able to talk to somebody at the water cooler and have better understanding of people, which is only to some degree heightening conflict, not not dissipating it. Yeah. And I mean, I think the real issue is that these are not um, high fidelity ways of interacting. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying everyone needs to go back to the office five days a week. You I can see that. It's okay. <laughs> say that. It's okay. I, I have that. plenty of office building owners listening to this yeah. webcast. We're like, go, Amy, just stay on. Yeah. But, the, the, but the, the challenge is what, whatever your work environment is, you just have to know what the downsides are and then compensate for them. Because some people can't be in the office five days a week. But yes, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll make that argument for the sake of the audience. But the, the thing to keep in mind is that it's not a high fidelity way of interacting. So I don't know what's going on in your office behind the computer, right? Like there could be four people in there trying to get your attention, right? And actually, really, I, I remember our last webcast when we were doing a prep call, you at one point seemed really distracted. And I was like, what is he doing? Like he's, and, and it, of course my brain is like, does he care about this? Is he listening? And it was, it was the height of the pandemic and your son had actually brought you breakfast. I don't know if you remember this. And I was like, oh, well, that's why he was slightly distracted. And it was like, the sweetest moment. But of course, if I had not had, if I didn't find out, I would have had this impression that you didn't care about the conversation or you couldn't listen for very long or whatever. And I think those are the things we make. We make these misattributions. There's misunderstanding. We don't have the full context, which is really challenging. And so we have to find ways to actually compensate for that. Um, and I, and that, and, and, those relationships do get tense. So we have to find ways also to connect with people in a human way. I mean, this little box I'm on on the screen, like doesn't make me feel particularly 3D or human or, human or empathetic. And so we have to find ways to really connect with people that so we give one another that benefit of the doubt. We have more understanding about what's motivating each other, what we care about, so that when those tensions do come up, we are better equipped to navigate them together. From reading the book, it 
it, it is a kind of, it's, it's a great guide to kind of how to deal with conflict on a one-to-one basis, how to deal with conflict if you're a manager who has two people who work for you who are in conflict with one another, how to deal with conflict if you think that the strategy of the company isn't correct, but you're the one who has to go implement it to your team. And you you point out there, you know, saying, hey, it's the, you know, it's the CEO's decision. I don't have anything to do with it is probably not the best way to deal with that. But, um, but for the last thing we talk about here, Amy, as it relates to corporate culture kind of writ large, as I read through conflict and how conflict exists everywhere, I think about it in the context of WD and about the fact that as we've grown this company from being a very small company to being a pretty good sized company and brought on thousands and thousands of employees over time, that, you know, I think that us being named a great place to work is something that we kind of hang our hat on. But it says that there's generally speaking a culture inside of the company which makes it so everyone kind of knows where they're going. And that when you kind of have a true north of where you're going, it it diminishes the amount of conflict over what are the objectives or what are the processes. And, and those are the two of the four kind of categories of conflict that exist in corporations. What would you say to business leaders or managers as it relates to from a pure kind of strategy slash business planning standpoint they can do to try and alleviate conflict they may have inside of their company or inside of their group? Yeah. I mean, I think Clarity is like one of the most, imp- and actually I got asked this question yesterday of like the clarity of mission, goals, and vision is just incredibly helpful to alleviate because then you, then people have a shared understanding of what they're working toward. Um, so I think that's one thing is just trying to clarify as much as you can what it is the company is trying to do and what are the the parameters in which we're we're trying to do that. That can help sort of dissipate some some of that conflict. But the other thing, and no one will be surprised I'm saying this, is you also have to normalize conflict because as much as you try to make things more smooth, you want tensions. You want someone to advocate for what's best for your customers while someone advocates what's best for the company. You want someone to advocate for super high quality. You want someone to advocate for speed. You want those tensions to exist and you have to normalize them so that when com- when conflicts do come up, you're able to say, okay, this is what's going on. It doesn't turn into the pers- the personality d- disagreements or the um, status conflicts, right? That you're, you're really just trying to address business issues for what they are, disagreements over how to do things, the right way to move forward. And if you can normalize that, including getting comfortable yourself with conflict and how to handle it, I think you're going to really pave the way for your organization. Normalize it, accept it, or foster it. I think about I think about Reed Dalio and the way he ran Bridgewater and the fact that they kind of, if you walked in with an investment idea, you better be ready for someone to take a howitzer out at that idea and blow it through. And they want, he wanted that conflict. And I and I think about what it would have been like to work there and how you have to have a very special culture and dynamic to allow for that, you know, incredibly brutally honest discussion to happen every single day. And for people to just like wipe it off their backs and keep on moving forward. But to your point about normalization, acceptance, or seek it, which which creates the more sort of successful organizations? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say it's a combination of all three. Like you have to normalize. It has to be when contentions come up, when conflict comes up, you can't have people just freaking out. You have to accept it that it's there, but you want to get rid of unhealthy conflict, right? Conflict that's really about people's personalities um, or that isn't moving the organization forward, but really just stalling it. Like if you can't find the like, what is the critical business issue we're trying to decide here? It may be that that conflict isn't healthy for the organization to have. Now, fostering is a different story. At Ray Dalio's organization, I don't. It doesn't sound very fun to me personally to work in. Um, I know people have worked there who didn't last long, um, but I think for for that organization, it worked in its own way. I do think there's there's. If you have no conflict right now, if you really are not not hearing a difference of opinion, yeah, you might need to foster some of it. But I don't think you need to unnecessarily create situations in which people fall into that amygdala hijack, right? You really have to make sure that people are able to show up to the conversation, engage in the conflict, engage in the tension in a productive way without sort of 
you know, putting them into the, such a heightened state that they're not able to even do what you want them to do. Amy, you're fantastic. I know you're about to head down under to give a speech and you're also going to head to the Great Barrier Reef with your daughter for some scuba diving. So enjoy that trip. I, I hope you have no conflict whatsoever on the <laughs> It, it'll all, it'll happen, but it'll, it'll be okay. It all goes beautifully, <laughs> but there's no conflict with the airline or anybody else. Yes, that, that, that's the conflict I don't want. Lily, thank you uh, so much for having uh, me. Greatly uh, enjoyed our conversation having you with me. Uh, I am live at the New York Stock Exchange next week with Peter Linneman. Uh, I know many, many people have already signed up for it, and I'm looking forward to having Peter tell us the hard stuff as it relates to where rates are going and all that stuff. Amy, thank you for an hour on the soft stuff. It's super, super important. Thank you. This has been really fun. Great. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye-bye.